you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Our text today is going to be verse 13 through the end of the chapter in a message entitled, Guard the Good Deposit. In 1935, a gold vault was built by the U.S. federal government to protect the nation's gold during a time of growing world turmoil. Fort Knox was nothing more than a small military outpost then, but it was chosen for its protected location in the mountains and its military support. So they transported the gold to the vault in 1936. According to the U.S. Treasury today, there are approximately 147.3 million ounces of gold stored at Fort Knox with gold currently fluctuating somewhere around $2,000 an ounce in value. Other things have also been stored at that location over time, including the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, three volumes of the Gutenberg Bible, original copies of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, as well as large quantities of industrial diamonds. Fort Knox is not open to the public, But in 2017, the Treasury Secretary at the time, Steve Mnuchin, along with the then governor of Kentucky and a civil delegation, visited the vaults there. Governor Bevan compared the experience to, quote, seeing a leprechaun on a unicorn. And he said the gold is freakishly well secured. There's also gold stored at 12 Federal Reserve Banks in West Point, New York, and at the Denver, Philadelphia, and San Francisco Mints. They guard these treasures with a sincere security because they know the value of it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 through 18, we're going to think today about what it means to guard the good deposit. But this is something far more valuable because it's not of earthly value only, it has eternal value. Second Timothy was written near the end of the Apostle Paul's life. Paul was in a Roman prison awaiting death. He would be eventually martyred under Nero. So he writes to Timothy encouraging him to continue on in the faith. He had written just a few years earlier in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20, and he said, Old Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And now we begin reading in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, verse 17, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. The big idea before us today is that we are to guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We are to guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
The Greek word for deposit was used of leaving valuables in the care of another person, a trusted friend, to guard while you're away. You have to make a deposit for an investment to benefit you. And we are instructed essentially to deposit our lives. You are to deposit your life or entrust your life to Jesus Christ for safekeeping. And you are to guard the good deposit that he has entrusted to you for his glory, for the advancement of the church, and for God's kingdom. Now, when you have something worth guarding, you're going to find a good place to put it. Paul had shared these things with Timothy, and Timothy had been given something valuable that was to be protected, a deposit. It was something that had been entrusted to him for safekeeping, and it needed to be protected for this reason. It is possible to not carry forward what you've been taught and what has been entrusted to you as a Christian or as a church and to be the broken link in the chain that causes those behind you not to have the deposit and ultimately not to guard it in their lives. I believe the good deposit is specifically the gospel. Paul outlined this in verse 8 through 10 of this chapter. He gives a very clear message that God has saved us, not because of anything we've done. God has saved us by his grace. And he gave us this gift before time began. And it's been revealed now through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has destroyed death and he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what I want to focus on in these few moments that we have together is how we are to guard the good deposit. How can we be faithful in this responsibility that has now been passed on to us? First, to guard the good deposit, hold on to sound doctrine. Hold on to sound doctrine. You'll notice the first command is in verse 13. He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. I want you to think about this phrase, the pattern much like you would think about a blueprint. A blueprint or a a drawing that would show you how to construct something properly. Here, the pattern is the blueprint for our lives that we are to follow in building our spiritual lives. The word sound can also be translated as healthy. And we want our lives to be spiritually healthy. Now remember, Timothy had served with Paul for an extended period of time as he traveled around uh, reaching people for Jesus and his churches were planted. Timothy heard Paul preach and teach a countless number of times. And no doubt they had had many one-on-one discussions about the truth of God as Paul was mentoring Timothy and as Paul was teaching him about the things of God. And the connection that we want to make here is that sound doctrine leads to spiritual health. You cannot have spiritual health unless you have sound doctrine. And when you have sound doctrine, it has to be actively applied to your life so that it will result in spiritual health. The issue of false teachers was a serious one at Ephesus. Timothy, being the pastor of the church at Ephesus, was responsible for a local assembly of believers on the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. 
It was a metropolitan city with a massive temple that was dedicated to Artemis, the supposed goddess protector of young girls, of childbirth, and so on. And Paul was able to establish a congregation in that place. You can read about the background of it in Acts chapter 19. There were people who were responding to the gospel, and when they responded to the gospel, they were being drawn out of a culture that was directly connected to the occult. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, in his farewell address, warns the leaders, the elders there, about false teachers that would come in. He says, listen, these people who are going to come in are going to be like ravenous wolves, and they're going to do whatever they can to try to destroy the church of the living Christ. And after Paul left Ephesus, he went to Jerusalem and he was arrested and imprisoned and then sent to Rome for a trial. And he wrote the book of Ephesians along with First and Second Timothy to address the problems there. And of central importance to Paul in all of these writings was to address false teaching and false teachers. In fact, in First Timothy 1 in verse 3 through 5, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. So he says, hey, Timothy, you're to stay there. You're to pastor that church. And in pastoring that church, you're to warn these people not to teach false doctrine. He said, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies because these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. And then he said in verse 5, Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and listen to this, a sincere faith. He follows up with that in 1 Timothy 6 in verse 3. And he says, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. False teachers and false doctrine contradict the Bible and either approve of people doing what they want to do or actually lead people into sin that is contrary to the holiness of God. And here's the root problem. The root problem is human pride. Because these false teachers get themselves to a position that they begin to ask the same question that the serpent asked in the garden. Did God really say? And when the question is asked, did God really say, and there's a reinterpretation of what the plain teaching of Scripture is, that's where the digression begins. And I want you to know that an individual believer, a church, a Christian family, All can be guilty of not guarding the gospel, and the effects will quickly become evident. It goes something like this. The gospel is at first accepted and believed, and people hold to it. A group of people hold to it. But then somewhere along the way, the gospel begins to be assumed. It's not front and center. It is not of chief importance. And when the gospel is assumed then pretty soon after that, the gospel is going to be confused. And when the gospel is confused, the gospel is then ultimately lost. False teachers and false teaching are as much a problem in the 21st century as they have ever been. 
Erwin Lutzer, the former pastor, longtime pastor of the Moody Bible Church in Chicago, identified what he calls five false gospels within the evangelical church in his book entitled The Church in Babylon. I do not believe that these five gospels that have arisen that are false within the evangelical church are exhaustive, but I think they are rather representative. And he says this in the book, the church has always been tempted to dull the sharp edges of the Christian faith, to abandon hard truths in the face of cultural and religious pressure. Passing a vibrant faith to the next generation is always a challenge. So here are the gospels that he identifies that are false. First of all, the gospel of permissive grace, a gospel that teaches that life comes with no boundaries. Unconditional love is interpreted to mean unconditional acceptance of one's lifestyle. This would be similar to antinomianism or just doing as you please because of the grace that's been extended to you. He also identifies the gospel of social justice meaning that we are commanded to live radically like Jesus. We are to commit ourselves to the needs of others. We are to meet practical needs, but we do so with a redemptive mindset. And there are so many people and even churches that from a good heart want to do some good things, but if it stops only with practical needs, if it stops only with that moment and it doesn't have a redemptive focus with a clear communication about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, then it's going to come up short. And we want to be faithful. This is important to us as a church. But we want to be certain that our compassion is motivated to alleviate suffering, including the ultimate suffering that is an eternity separated from God. And then Luther mentions the gospel of New Age spirituality. It focuses on spiritual experiences apart from a biblical gospel. In other words, it is highly emotionally driven. It's subjectively driven rather than being objectively driven by the word. And then he focuses on the gospel of what he calls my sexual preference. Now, this is prominent in the age that we're living in. People are afraid of being seen as hateful rather than loving And people who take a stand against the LGBTQI agenda are increasingly being marginalized. We, of course, want to speak the truth in love. We want to be compassionate. We want to be a loving people. But I want you to think about the cultural moment that we are living in. A man presenting himself as a woman named Leah Thomas dominated the nation's best female athletes last year in the NCAA swimming championships. The USA Today named Rachel Levine, another man presenting himself as a woman, as one of their women of the year. Never before have we seen a presidential administration as aggressive and blatant on these issues as the one we now have. President Biden, the self-professed devout Catholic, regularly uses spiritual language on these issues. And since he regularly uses spiritual language on these issues, I'm going to address it from a spiritual perspective. He uses the phrase over and over again, we are in a battle for the soul of this nation. 
I do not think that means what he thinks it means. And hyperbolic language is constantly used for what's at stake. Recently, in speaking about some states not permitting the sexual mutilation of minors, President Biden said, and I quote, it is cruel, it is close to sin, and it has been called immoral also by him. Our president has zero conscience on these issues, and we as a nation have lost our way, and it is affecting our perspectives in the church as well as culture and government who continue to promote it, and false teachers are buying into it in the church. Hardly a week goes by when I don't see something online of people who present themselves as religious leaders who are teaching spiritual things, and yet they've decided to turn and go in the opposite direction of what the Bible teaches. Anyone who teaches something that is contrary to what the plain teaching of Scripture is, is a false teacher. There's no other way to state it, and that's the issue that we're now dealing with. Now, the mainline denominations long ago left sound doctrine on these matters, and increasingly, people who have been called evangelicals, like Andy Stanley, are doing the same. Now, there could not have been a more sound Bible teacher in the latter part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century than Charles Stanley. And in one generation, just one generation, his son Andy has departed from sound doctrine. He speaks of unhitching our fate from the Old Testament. He speaks of homosexuality in the same way that the culture speaks of homosexuality. In just one generation, just one, he's fallen by the wayside from biblical truth. And then finally, Lutzer mentions the gospel of interfaith dialogue. He said, under the guise of tolerance and love, it's promoted without an eye on the truth. So they have these summits of interfaith, and they have these discussions of different, and I'm not talking about denominations, I'm talking about literally different world religions. And yet, there's no ultimate truth proclaimed in it. Again, these are not exhaustive, they're representative. But I ran into this issue of false teaching uh, very prominently recently in my mission opportunity in Peru. Um, we were serving with Jesus El Camino Iglesia, and one of the locations that they serve in is called a community kitchen. And it's up on a hillside there outside of Lima. And the people come together and they cook and they pull resources and there's donations that are given and people are provided practical needs. And it's into that situation that this church is going to try to proclaim the gospel. But I asked the pastor, I said, what are the most prominent false teachings that you uh, encounter in this one location? He's not talking about everywhere, just this one location that's not all that large of a community when you look at it from a numbers perspective. He said in that one community kitchen, they're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mother of God cult, as well as what's called the Israelite sect. Now, that's not the Israelites as you're thinking, it's an offshoot that has some of the same language and the same uh, ideas, but it's very much politically driven. It's got an earthly Messiah who's named himself as such, and there's been a downline effect from that. I don't have time to explain it all. But the main point that I want to get across here is that these are real-time issues. In fact, I think that 
false teaching and false teachers may be a bigger problem than they've ever been because of the accessibility to people in the world, because of the technology that's available to get these ideas to people in ways that haven't been available before. But ironically, this last week when I was finishing up this particular message, I went home and I saw that a piece of mail had come. And it says simply on the front of the piece of mail, Polk family. No return address, nothing else on here. And I thought, this is going to be good. Now, let me just tell you, I've heard conventional wisdom always as a pastor that if you get an anonymous letter, you don't even read it, you throw it away. But let me just tell you, my curiosity always gets me. And I get letters like this occasionally at the church, and they're never nice, they're never edifying, they're never encouraging. I always read them because I'm curious and I need to know what they're saying. So if you want to send me something ugly, send it on. I need some entertainment anyway. (laughs) I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to rip it up, and I'm going to throw it in the trash. But I saved this little letter just for today's purpose. So when I opened it up, there's this nice little brochure in here. And it says on the front, 2023 Memorial of Jesus' Death. What can his sacrifice mean for you? Now, instantly, I knew this was from the Jehovah's Witnesses because you can tell by the art that they use and some of the language that they use. But I opened it up, and I thought, well, let me see what they're inviting me to. So on the inside, uh, I was invited to two Bible talks, special Bible talks. Uh, You can face the future with confidence, and they're inviting us to the local Kingdom Hall to come and hear about this memorial. And then another one you're invited to just a few days later that sort of coincides with Easter. Now, what they don't tell you on this nice little brochure, on this card that I got that also has a QR code on the back to get even more information about the Jehovah's Witnesses, is that they don't even believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is a created being. They believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel and all kinds of crazy thoughts. But what if I was a person who was spiritually seeking? I did not have any background really in the faith. And I open this up, and I'm in a difficult or a dark moment, and I think, hmm, I'm just going to go check that out. And then I go and check it out, and I'm completely confused. Sound doctrine matters. And the antidote to all of this is for us to hold on to the pattern of sound teaching and to contend for the faith. Secondly, to guard the good deposit, live a godly life. Look now at verse 13 you'll find the phrase, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying to Timothy, you need to live a godly life in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And knowing sound doctrine is not enough, how you live sound doctrine also matters. You live sound doctrine by a godly life that is through faith in Jesus, believing what the Bible teaches, but then working it out practically in your everyday life. Now watch this, genuine faith always produces the fruit of obedience. And we can think about this in reverse, because if the fruit of obedience is missing, we would say rightly that genuine faith is also missing, because genuine faith is going to produce the fruit of obedience. Jesus himself said that, if you love me, keep my commandments. And living a godly life by holding on to sound doctrine in the love that is in Christ Jesus is the highest form of faithfulness. It's biblical love that is a commitment to seek 
the highest good of ourselves and others for the glory of God. Now, how can we do this? I often tell you that this is not a try harder, do better faith. Thankfully, this is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do the best you can in your faith. That's not how it works. The same grace that God gave you when he saved you is the grace that God gives you to live the life that honors him. And the power to exercise faith and love comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. When you trust in Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and brings an entirely new life of love and relationship and service to the Lord. The Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. I like a little illustration by Watchman Nee that he wrote in one of his books. He pointed out that a person walks differently when they've got a treasure in their pocket. He said, for example, if you were walking in a city and you had a quarter in your pocket, you're not going to be all that concerned about getting mugged and somebody taking that quarter from you. But if someone gives you $10,000 cash and you put that $10,000 cash in your pocket, you're going to be very careful when you move around the city because you don't want to put yourself in a place where you might be mugged and the treasure be stolen. If you have deposited your life with Jesus Christ, he has given you the precious treasure of the gospel that can never be taken away from you. And what he's asking you to do is to hold on to it with sound doctrine and with godly living. So think about it this way. The Holy Spirit gave us sound doctrine in the word. It's inspired. The reason that we can have confidence in the Bible is because it is the inspired word of God. It is not the construct of man. It is the word that God has given to us so that we will know the truth, that we can know God and we can know the truth about ourselves and our sin. And we can understand what he has done for us through his son, Jesus. And we can walk the path uh, to eternal life because we've received it by grace through faith. And if you live in dependence on him, he will not only give you sound doctrine, he will help you understand sound doctrine, and he will empower you to live sound doctrine. And if you live in dependence on the Holy Spirit, you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. You will produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about your walk with God. In the Bible, we are commanded to walk in good works to walk properly, to walk by faith, to walk in love, to walk as children of the light, to walk worthy of the Lord, to walk worthy of your calling, and to walk as Jesus walked. You cannot live a godly life without sound doctrine, and you cannot live a godly life without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And then third, if you want to guard the good deposit, to guard the good deposit, extend mercy to servants of God. Now verse 15, it says, All those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now this is coming from a man, Paul, who knew the disappointment of people who were not ultimately loyal to the mission and the ministry. And he makes a statement. And this statement probably is for emphasis ultimately, but it reflects a man who was under a tremendous amount of stress. And he says, all of them in Asia deserted me. The whole crowd left me. Everybody walked away from me. 
Now, we don't know who these two individuals were specifically because we're not given details. But whatever the situation was, Paul thought it necessary to call them out. And I think the reason Paul calls them out in this moment is in order to stop others who might do the same. And sometimes this type of opposition comes in the form of rumors and false claims against someone who is serving the Lord. Whoever they were, they acted with selfishness and they were unfaithful at just the time that Paul needed their support the most. Undoubtedly, he had spent time teaching them how to follow Christ and he had prayed for them and ministered to them. And then at this inopportune time, they had stirred up controversy and abandoned Paul. Now, friends, it is an unfortunate thing to have your name recorded one time in the word of God. And when your name is recorded one time in the word of God, what is it? It's an example of unfaithfulness. That's a very unfortunate thing to have happen. But the contrast to these men was the man Onesiphorus. And in verse 16, he says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Why? Well, Paul says he was not ashamed of my chains. He came to him as a friend and co-laborer in the ministry. He was not embarrassed to support him, even though Paul was in a difficult situation. Uh, Paul said he diligently searched for me and found me when he was in Rome. Now, we're not told if he was in Rome on other business or he came solely on the mission to find Paul. I think the latter is probably the case. He probably came for the purpose of finding him. But this man had to risk his life in order to do that. Why? Paul was politically dangerous to the Jewish establishment. He had been arrested as a man who was stirring up sedition. Had the charges been true, visiting Paul would have been like going to visit a terrorist. And you'd make yourself a target as well. Albert McKinnon put it this way. He said, Onesiphorus went to Rome at a time when every Christian was trying to get out of it. This was a time when Nero was having Christians covered with tar and burned to light his garden parties. Others were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And yet this man went on purpose to find Paul. He reminds him also that uh, Onesiphorus had ministered much at Ephesus. He intentionally blessed Paul and worked to refresh him. He had done so for so many other people in the church. So Paul says, may the Lord grant mercy to his household. Here's what I think that represents. I think it represents a special prayer for a faithful ser servant of Jesus. Onesiphorus lived up to the meaning of his name. You know what his name means? It means help bringer. What a great way to be described. It's your name literally means help bringer. His household had remained in Ephesus and he prayed that the Lord, Paul did, that the Lord would show mercy to them all. Now I want you to hear me on this and I want you to hear me well. In the church, each of us has the potential to either be a deserter, ultimately known and remembered for our unfaithfulness, or we have the opportunity to be a help bringer. Let me state that once more for emphasis. Each of us has the potential to be a deserter, ultimately known and remembered for our unfaithfulness, or we have the opportunity to be a help bringer, remembered for our faithfulness and recipients of the mercy of God. 
Uh, it is God who ultimately extends mercy to anybody on that day, that day of the return of Jesus, that day of accountability, that day of the ultimate accounting of, its all, of us all. But in the meantime, we are to extend mercy to servants of God as well. And that's part of what we do even today as we're celebrating as a church and we're thinking about the faithfulness of the people who have brought us to this point. We're thinking about the help bringers. We're thinking about the people who have committed themselves and what they had and their belongings and their lives and their futures. They've committed it all to the glory of God through this church. They're help bringers. And now we're looking at them and we're saying, Lord, help us be like them in the future. Help us to be that someday people will look back and there'll be a history told if Jesus tarries is coming in 25 years from now or 50 years from now. And they'll look back and they'll say, there was a day of celebration at Cross Lanes Baptist Church. And it commemorated the help bringers, the people who were faithful to the things of God. And we're the recipients of that. May God show mercy on us and on them. And I say this to you in closing. Guarding the good deposit will not be easy. But it will always be worth it. Jesus didn't promise it'd be easy, but he promised it would be worth it. I opened today with a story about Fort Knox. You have undoubtedly heard the phrase somewhere along the line, as secure as Fort Knox, referring to the absolute security of something. Uh, Only a few people know the real structure of that facility or all the items that are safeguarded inside No one person has all of the combinations that are needed to get into the vault. It's like a daisy chain where one person has the combination that opens it up to the next person. And then the next person has to do their combination. And there's this elaborate series till finally it's open and somebody can actually see inside. And what that does is it protects it from from one person falling along the wayside and, and breaking rank. And... It focuses on the security overall of the facility. The vault is sheltered by a 22-ton blast-proof security gate that also requires specific codes for each staff member. There's an elaborate system of electronic security and laser wire and seismographic sensors that will alert security if anyone is approaching. It is one of the world's most secure sites. And here's the comparison, the parallel that I want to draw from that. First of all, we are secure in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely nothing. With that, we've been entrusted to guard the deposit, to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us. We don't want to be the generation that breaks the link in the chain from one to the next. But the beauty of this is that collectively, God gives us strength. And that means that even when there is a person or persons who might be described as the deserters among the group, there are still enough help bringers that the whole thing stays together. And what that says to you is that it's not only the responsibility of the lead pastor or the people who are in key leadership to make sure that the whole thing stays together from a biblical perspective and that the gospel is guarded, it's up to all of us. And there are many churches along the way that at one time would have been described as great churches, did great things for the mission and ministry of God, 
And somewhere along the way, they collectively went the wrong direction. And now today, they are a cautionary tale of what not to do. May God help us that we not be a cautionary tale, but that we would be a people who are faithful to what God has entrusted to us. If you want to guard the good deposit of the gospel, you must first receive it through faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you've heard this whole message about guarding something, you first need to receive the good deposit. You need to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord so that you can guard it and be faithful to it. And if you want to guard the good deposit of the gospel, as a believer, you need to treasure it and you need to have enough courage to defend it. You need to step forward when there are attacks against the gospel. You need to have the boldness to speak the truth in love and for God to use you as a mouthpiece for truth. And if you want to guard the good deposit of the gospel, you need to share Jesus with others because we've been given such a great blessing and we want other people to experience the same. We have the promise of an eternal inheritance in heaven. It will never perish, spoil, or fade away, and it is kept by God. He's the one who keeps it, and that's why we keep looking to him. That's why we say continually, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus for your hope. Keep drawing your direction from his word, because he's the one who will keep you. As we pray today, may that be our heart and may that be the reality of our lives and of our church. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. And then Pastor Eric's going to come and lead us in the closing song. And then we'll give you some instructions to follow. Father God, let us look back today at all who have gone before us and be thankful. Let us be thankful for the sacrifices that have been made. For the resolve that uh, these folks have had. For the faithfulness of their testimonies for the difficulties that they have endured. And God, we look back and we see how you were faithful to them and we know now that you are faithful to us. Empower us to be faithful in the moment, to pour out our lives with uh, a faithfulness that, that goes beyond our strength. Grant us the resolve not to give up in the fight, but to guard the good deposit of the gospel. May we not stand by passively, but may we actively defend the truth for your honor and glory. And may we be a people who are willing to make historic commitments in our generation for the generations that follow. And Father, may you fill us with hope for the future as we long for and we anticipate and we pray for the return of our Savior. And I pray that we would be ready when he comes. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.